Hey there, audio community. The Sound Girls podcast would like to thank our sponsors, QSC, for supporting our program. And you may think pro audio when you think about QSC, but they're also about making the world a better place. They're committed to things like integrity and building trust and keeping promises. They promote thinking long-term, even when it's more work, and they value inclusion. They promote doing the right thing just because it's the right thing to do. So QSC is about a lot more than just audio, and we're very grateful for their support. So check out everything that they're about at QSC.com. Hello, audio friends. Welcome to the Sound Girls podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Wilson, and today's interview with Josh Osman is supercharged cool. For close to nine years, Josh has been mixing front of house for the Lumineers, and he's also toured mixing John Legend, Tracy Chapman, and a lot of other fantastic people. And what I found most surprising about this interview was how daunting and complex mixing the Lumineers is. He talks about the 100 plus inputs, drum bus processing, and the intricate MIDI mapping that was done on Jeremiah's piano. He also explains what a guitar ISO cab is and how they mic theirs. And we also cover the plugins he likes too. If you're a front of house engineer or you want to be, do not miss this episode. And if you're looking for more Sound Girls podcasts like this one, you can find over 100 more in all the normal spots. Okay. Here's Josh Osmond. How are you? Good. Yeah, this is great. It's like Sunday brunch, kind of. Well, thanks for showing up early on a on a Sunday. I mean, I know it's. Uh, I appreciate you coming on. So, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks. Where are you coming? You're in Larkspur. Yeah, I live in Larkspur, which is basically uh, Marin County, just north of San Francisco. Um, so, just across the Golden Gate Bridge. It's there's a lot of goodness up there. I yeah. love that area. <laughs> yeah, and how about you? Where are you? You're New York? I'm in Brooklyn. What part of Brooklyn? My sister lives in Prospect Park or Prospect Heights? Prospect Park. Oh, yeah. I'm on the other side of the park from her. So, yeah, I'm really close. I, I walk over there all the time. Do you come here? Uh, I do. I mean, honestly, like most of my trips to New York end up being for work. Um, and then anytime, I mean, sometimes there's just not time because we're running around doing TV shows or whatever it might be in your schedules. Pretty quick. And then there's COVID too, of course. So I would love to hear about how you kind of got started in audio and who and why and how. Yeah, sure. Music had always been a big part of my life. Music was important for my family. I grew up with an uncle who played piano. And so at a young age, uh, going to my grandma's house, would always be sitting there with, you know, like on the piano bench next to him as he would play and just kind of taking it all in and enjoying it. Once I graduated high school, I ended up, you know, as someone that would go to a lot of concerts uh, in my spare time. What was your first concert? My first concert I ever went to on my own, it might get a laugh. It was, I think I was in sixth grade and I went to the Concord Pavilion out here in the Bay Area. And I saw, uh, it was Criss Cross, MC Light. Yeah, Criss Cross. Uh, yeah, totally Criss Cross, MC Light, and Dr. Dre and Ed Lover from that old MTV show, Yo! MTV Raps. I love that you went to an art, <laughs> yeah. to a hip hop. Yeah. That's not even a joke. I mean, mine was like Tunnel of Love, Bruce, Bruce Springsteen. So, I mean, yours is way cooler. How did you get into audio? I was always fascinated with how things sounded. You know, I would, if I found a song I liked, I would listen to it over and over again and just sort of immerse myself in it. And so I think that's why, you know, after high school, when I started going to concerts quite a bit, uh, I just naturally kind of gravitated towards the soundboard. 
once I realized, oh, wow, here's this whole side of these shows going on that, you know, could possibly potentially be a part of, then I made it a very deliberate thing of seeking out, you know, finding uh, the means to, to be able to make that happen. And so what was your first job where you were excited and you were kind of your mind? was Well, so the path I took, because I realized that's what I wanted to do. And at the time, I just didn't know how I was going to do it. So I, uh, I ended up going into school. Um, so I went to a recording school and used that as my sort of introduction into the industry. And, you know, just, just a real base level introduction into audio um, on all levels. And I knew... At the time, I didn't really want to go into doing studio work, but you know, I knew that that also was sort of my best way of getting a foot in the door. So I went to a school out here called Expression, which is a, a recording school that was uh, started originally by one of the gentlemen who worked at Full Sail. So it's very much a Full Sail type school, and and he came out here and started his school where he, you know, in his words, he took everything he didn't like about Full Sail and changed it to something, you know, the way he liked it. Gave people more hands on time on the consoles and in the studio, and and so I did that uh, in the early two thousands. I think I was the twenty third class to graduate from that school, um, something like that. So it was pr- pretty, pretty early on there. Um, and then I actually, you know, because I knew I wanted to do touring and specifically I wanted to tour, you know, do live sound. And in ideal world, because I knew I had no experience, I wanted to work for a band that was, you know, pretty young and uh, somewhere where I could actually go and work, you know, not, not sit back and watch someone else do it. And in a very like serendipitous way, one day I was just walking through the cafeteria and overheard someone, you know, another group of students talking about a band that had come in and play in the concert space there. And their manager was handing out business cards, just looking for people that may want to work with them. And as I walked by, I overheard it and said, oh, hey, wait a minute. Like, let me, uh, can I grab that card from you? And I, I called the manager and Told him I, I'm interested in, in trying to start doing shows. You know, I wanted to tour. I you know made it very clear I didn't really have any experience, but was really looking forward to wanting you know to tour with a band that was you know just kind of getting ready to to really go at it and and see what happens. So and that that was a, a, a regional band here in the Bay Area. They were called Hot Buttered Rum, and they were sort of a, a jam band. And so it was sort of a perfect fit at the time where I was able to really just kind of cut my teeth and make a lot of really dumb mistakes and uh, mess up quite a bit. And, you know, when we started out, they were do- playing bars mostly, and we'd bring in our own sound system, and we were touring nationwide. You know, we we traveled around in an old school bus they were doing around 220 shows a year for the first two years that I toured. So, oh my gosh, you must have been exhausted. I was exhausted, but at the same time, you know, I was 20, I just turned 23 years old. I had just finished school for doing, you know, like what I was eventually going to become my, you know, career. And so I was pretty fired up and excited by it and didn't even look back. You know, I, I, I didn't even go to the graduation from expression because they were often touring. So I pretty much just went right out and started started going on the road. And um, I ended up working with them for about six years. Um, so we kind of, it was a great sort of growth to, to ease into the industry, um, be doing a lot of hands-on work and actually mixing, which is what I wanted to do. So we went from, you know, doing bars and they eventually grew up 
to the point where they were playing, you know, like 1,000 to 1,500 cap rooms, which uh, at the time was like, oh my God, this is massive. You know, yeah. like these rooms yeah. are huge and and intimidating and nerve wracking and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. uh, but it really was a great, you know, like a great first sort of step in my career and, and first tour and first job and first real like introduction into the world of, of touring audio in a lot of ways is kind of combat audio <laughs> there because yeah you know you're well going said. into all these all these bars clubs places where everything's broken not working and you're just you have to find you know you're just finding a way to make it make it work and and to you know do the best show that you could do given those circumstances yeah yeah so then how did the transition happen between hot buttered rum and tracy chapman so that one is a little out of the blue i'd slowly been here in the bay area um it slowly sort of started to build a relationship with the company here that I now work with or work for, uh, Ultrasound. You know, I, would, I started it by just renting equipment from them here and there for our for the Hot Buttered Rum shows. Um, little things like, you know, if we did a show at the Fillmore in San Francisco, I'd rent, rent uh, front fill speakers because I wanted to have better coverage up front for the first five, you know, 10 feet of the audience area. And through that, you know, they started to ask me to do shows here and there, just freelance. So I, I would do a couple club shows, did a festival, and then it started as them asking me to go on tour to mix monitors for Les Claypool. Oh, really? Wow. It went from mixing monitors for Les Claypool overnight to then like mixing monitors for Tracy Chapman. So how, just curiosity, how long were you, did, how many shows did you do with Les? Uh, I actually, I did none. I never made oh, it Oh, I far. see. Okay. So the- <laughs> it was like, yeah, like it was literally like, okay, you're going to like, we want you to do this. And then the next day they called and said, hey, actually, can you go mix monitors for Tracy Chapman on her European tour? And the Les Claypool thing, I was already, I was like, okay, like that's for me at the time, like, like that's a pretty big gig, pretty nervous. But I, you know, like my good friend was mixing front of house for him. So I, it was like kind of a comfortable, like jumping off the cliff a little bit. And as soon as it, once it changed to Tracy Chapman, all of a sudden I was like, oh, wow, this is a whole different world. Like, I, you know, I don't know anyone out there. She's definitely like a much, you know, uh, in a lot of ways, a much larger like pop star, essentially. And then it was also in Europe, in Europe. So um, I had never toured Europe. So that was incredibly, it was, I was incredibly nervous for it. I felt like I wasn't ready for it. And I felt like I didn't know what I was doing. And I thought I was probably going to fail miserably. <laughs> was it mostly theaters? Uh, no, no, she, um, this, so this was 2009. It was actually the last tour she has done. Um, just part of why I have, haven't done anything with her since then, but, uh, it was a lot of, in Europe, she was huge. So over there is a lot of arenas, uh, smaller sized arenas, big outdoor, outdoor, uh, venues in Europe. I don't know uh, anyone that's toured Europe out there knows kind of, uh, you know, you could go into Switzerland, some of these places, and they'll they'll set up a stage sort of in a plaza or in the middle yep. of, you know, like this cool intersection in these in these funky like towns in the Alps, things like that. And then, they, you know, throw a big summer concert festival series where 15, 20,000 people show up to, to all the shows. Sure. So, wow, that must have been a mind blow to just, yeah, and be nervous. And, and you everybody has that. Yeah, especially since I had never mixed monitors before at the time. I mean, aside from mixing from front of house, you know, for the band I was working for, but I was never a monitor engineer per se. Did it go okay or was it a little bit of a wreck at first? Uh, no, it went great. Um, Tracy and I got along really well. She's really, she, she's very particular about what she's listening to, but it, but it worked out really well, went really great. And then when we, the tour moved to the States, she moved me to front of house. So I guess it went, you know, 
really good. Pretty good considering. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but she's she's awesome. She's like what was one of the best artists to work for. She's she's amazing. You know, she's she's really soft spoken, but then gets on stage and is just like, wow, like where is that voice coming from? Like that is amazing. Yeah, you know? she's really, I mean, top tier talent for sure. Um, what a so so okay then. You know, I looked. So then, John Legend. I mean, what this is like an amazing. Uh, yeah. yeah. So so technically, Lumineers actually came before John Legend. Okay. After Tracy, that really like that was the first tour where I really it opened my eyes in a lot of ways. Where I thought, oh wow, like I could tour on a real bus, uh, I could make real money, and this suddenly in my because. You know, working for the the the, the first band, Hoppered Rum, it was kind of more of like a love of passion, like a passion job. It, you know, it, it was tough to to really see that becoming a, a career path. You know, that was going to have longevity. And then suddenly, with Tracy Chapman, it just opened my eyes. Thing like, oh wow, this is actually possible now for me to you know, like. I see a path to have a career here and 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 really like make you know a, a, a comfortable living. Uh, while doing what I love doing. So after the Tracy tour, I started to work more and more with uh, the company Ultrasound. Through that work is how I landed the Lumineers job. Uh, the The production manager at the time was someone that I knew, and they had just gotten incredibly popular. Um, this was 2013, and you know they went almost literally overnight from from you know one tour that was booked in like 200 cap clubs to then playing like outdoor amphitheaters with 5,000, 7,000 people on their next tour. So they grew very rapidly at that time. And we're kind of looking to, to you know, bring on a crew that can, has done shows of the larger, you know, larger size shows and, and work for them. So I, that's, that was my start with the Lumineers. And then that production manager moved on to work with John Legend. And so then, you know, he brought me in with, to John Legend. Um, and that would have been, I think, 2014. And it worked out great for, for the last, really the last six or so years where if the Lumineers weren't working, then John Legend was kind of busy. So I was able to bounce back and forth That's between great. the two. That's ideal. Which was great. Yeah. Yeah. And it's fun because it's, you know, it's two completely different styles of music to mix. You know, the Lumineers are more of like folk rock, kind of a little bit like rough around the edges, a little raggedy, but really fun, really good songwriting, really kind of rowdy, like fun shows. And then John Legend is obviously, you know, like R&B and soul and just like an amazing band that is, uh, you know, a lot of players in his band came out of the church music scene. Oh, I uh, love that. In Philadelphia, in Philadelphia. Wow. Um, so, yeah, two completely opposite ends of the spectrum as far as uh, what the actual mix requires um, or, or, you know, what the content is, but, but also two very like equally amazing groups to to be able to to do so to mix so it's yeah it's been pretty fun i i would imagine i uh i'd love for you to give us a little bit of um like maybe just technically how mixing lumineers i just think they're so anthematic because you know obviously like you said their their melodies are incredible but also just the way their lineup is it feels like it would be really fun to mix because it's or is there cha is it really challenging? Both, yeah. It's it's fun to mix and it's challenging. It's kind of one of those bands that's pretty deceptive in in some ways from that standpoint, technically, because when you see them or hear them, you know, it sounds like fairly simple music. Yeah, and transparent. It's folky. It's yeah. it's rootsy, like really transparent. Uh, but when you translate that 
into their live show, you know, now, especially that we're doing arenas and, and we even on this upcoming tour have their first two headlining stadium shows at uh, Coors, Coors Field and Wrigley Field. So mixing them, I've also heard about Jeremiah's piano and the sampler in there. And I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. So we use for his piano setup, we use uh, now use main stage. So it's a, it's a real piano. Uh, it's a Yamaha U1 piano that's got MIDI capability in it. So it's really just a big controller um, and it has a silence mode. So you could, you could take, you know, one of the pedals and slide it to the left and it silences the hammers on the piano. So that sends MIDI control notes over to a rack that lives in keyboard tech world. And, and it's all main stage uh, software that, that runs it. And this was a change that I did uh, with, with Nick close, who's our keyboard tech, amazing keyboard tech. We did this change between last tour and this tour is just one of the things I really wanted to improve on. So we went from using a, a Yamaha motif ES rack mount unit, which is basically an old discontinued Yamaha brain with piano sounds. That was really great and worked really well, um, for us, but I just wanted to try and take it, you know, go another step. So with the main stage setup, we were then able to start getting, you know, get like the world of sample packs all of a sudden is, is infinite, right? You could, you could find anything you want. Whereas with the Yamaha motif, it was a little more antiquated technology. It's hard to load, load anything into it. We found the pianos that were used for the album. And then on top of that, Jeremiah, the piano player, has his own sample pack with um, a company called Spitfire Audio. And so we were able to implement his actual sample pack from Spitfire for a couple of the songs that are this really funky old piano that he grew up with playing as a kid. And they use it on every album. Um, it's this really unique sound. It has a cracked soundboard in it. So it has this funky sort of distorted sound to it and, and kind of harmonic overtones. So we were able to implement that into the show. And all of a sudden, you've got these incredibly real sounding and natural sounding piano sounds coming out of the piano. And it really has, has made a huge difference um, sonically because it's such you know, the piano plays a big part in these songs. Yeah. It's not necessarily driving all the songs. It does drive a number of the songs, but in general, it's just a huge, a huge part of their sound. So that was a really fun project. There's a lot of work, you know, like learning curve of, of learning main stage. Nick, Nick Close did a lot of, spent a lot of time figuring out all the right interfaces to get and having, making sure we had a fully redundant system with all our computers. So it was 100% fail proof. Wow. I'm, I'm so impressed when I heard that, that they actually went in and recorded and mapped the, that piano. I was, and the velocity and all the everything just, I mean, the, the amount of work. I'm impressed. Oh, yeah, I think they must have. I mean, I think I've, I've seen pictures of, of the miking scheme they did. And they, you know, they they did traditional overhead mics on the piano. But then they also had some mics, microphones on the keys themselves. They put microphones down on the pedals to get the sound of, Squeak. you know, just the acoustic sound of the pedals as you're hitting them. Yeah. So there's a lot of sort of cool, funky mechanical noise in some of the patches because of that, which was part of the uniqueness of that piano sound um, on the albums. So that's what we were going for. And it, it's really kind of paid off and, and worked really well. Could you talk a little bit more about mixing Lumineers and what else you possibly, you know? Yeah. So so the thing was, so the Lumineers are six people on stage. And we kind of joke sometimes they're like the arcade fire of folk music because they don't stay in one place. They all move, run around different parts of the stage. They all play, you know, play the same, you know, the 
piano player goes and plays acoustic guitar, then plays mandolin, and the the violin player plays piano, and uh, the drummer will go play piano. The the there's an auxiliary player that plays some drum parts and other guitars, and then he'll go and play the main drum kit, and it just and then Wes, the singer and guitar player, will sometimes go play piano. So it's really everyone is all over the place, which makes it a really fun and entertaining show, right? From the audience perspective, because there's never a sort of a dull moment where folks are running around. But as a result, technically speaking, that has uh, translated to us having an input list that's around 120 inputs. Uh, Wow, that's a mind blow. Wow. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's a lot of inputs. They don't ever get used all at once. You know, like we're probably at once in the neighborhood of 50 something, 56 or so channels that are maximum, you know, used at one time. But because everyone plays so many different instruments, everyone has their own acoustic guitar. Everyone has their own like mandolin because we don't, you know, on the mixing side of things, you don't really want to have three different people play the same guitar coming in and down the same input, right? Because different levels, different different tonalities, maybe different playing styles. Yeah. So it just it's just grown and grown and grown. And I would never have guessed that. I never would have thought that you would have over 100. I was like, <laughs> no, I was, wow, it's probably really clean and easy to mix. No, that's funny. Yep. Yeah. Just a, this like simple little folk yeah. band. Yep. <laughs> um, so <laughs> So yeah, it's really, it, they keep you on your toes. There's there's literally, I think, like when we do our arena show, um, on top of that, there's a thrust um, that goes out each side, both stage left and stage right. There's a thrust that goes out into the audience and then kind of comes out into an apex. Um, and then the center area is all open for audience. So um, in the middle is like kind of VIP fan club folks and, and audience in there. and then And then the rest of the arena crowd outside of the the pit and on that thrust you know out in front of the pa of course uh there's a drum there's a drum lift with a drum kit really there yep (laughs) uh there's a piano out there and then there are six different vocal positions and the thing that makes that challenging so they do in our arena show i think they do maybe five or six songs out on the thrust not all at once it's like interspersed throughout the show um so every song that's out on the thrust the the lead singer wesley he'll go and sing into any microphone that's out there you know he'll he'll in between you know different verses he'll he'll go and and go into a different mic that's really hard yeah and then also each song that they're out there those microphone positions move so on top of him singing into a different microphone throughout each song the physical position of the microphones are constantly moving out there so it makes it a lot of fun trying to keep track of it all um Nonetheless, you've got, you know, a drum kit plus six vocal mics all in front of the PA, you know, about 70 feet out in front of the PA in the audience. Um, what kind of PA are you guys carrying? Uh, I use uh, Meyer Sound. Um, okay. I've been traveling and working with Meyer Sound systems for a long time now. Um, so ever since I took over mixing the Lumineers in 2013, we've always toured with a, with a Meyer Sound system. Meyer rig. Um, so right now it's... Which boxes? Uh, it is the, the system we just sent out that um, is about to start this tour is uh, Leo. Uh, for the main arrays, so it's Leo Leo speakers with the Lion as a as a downfill box, and then there are side arrays of Lion as well, um, and then I do flown subs uh, that are the eleven hundred LFC subwoofers from them, um, and that's just been you know the Meyer system for me 
is has always been the the right choice. It's one of those things, right? When you get to same with consoles, like the top four or five manufacturers, it's they're all good, they're all great, they all you know, like if you can't have a good show on those, then yeah, you know, it's probably not the product. It's probably you know, you maybe have something in the mix, maybe you're whatever it might be, something else went wrong. But sure, but to me, the Meyer systems are the best fit for this band, and for me, it's you know, they're a really transparent system, very linear, very musical, the you know, like real fast transient responses um out of the subs um which is which is really nice and important especially for this style you don't want to have you know like a real slow kind of lagging sub for this for the lumineer style music right where it's really kind of clean music and wants to be punchy and fast what kind of desk are you on out there and could you talk a little bit about the processing that you use yeah so i i do um i use avid s6l uh, 32d and i've been on the avid platform for some time now um Again, one of those things where it just kind of comes down to what workflow works for you, for each individual. Um, and for me, I've always just, you know, the Avid stuff has always worked great for me. The The integration with Pro Tools is, you know, better than any other console. It's fantastic with virtual sound check and um, the workflow on it is great and the features and, and various events and macro type, type programming that you could do on the console is really uh pretty tough to beat. Um, and then I have some outboard equipment as well. Most everything in my outboard rack is doing sort of bus processing across groups or the master bus. So I have, um, across the drums, uh, I do two API 2500s and I do it on a kick snare tom drum bus group. And the, the first one isn't really doing much. It's just kind of tickling, doing like two to one compression maybe one to two dB a gain reduction. And then the second one is doing the, is really squashing it. Um, and the main reason I run it through the, the unprocessed, you know, the more dry signal, I still run it through those is number one, I want to keep the same latency running through an analog signal path. So, so both drum groups are, you know, experiencing the same latency, leaving the desk and coming back. And then on top of it, just getting a little bit of the tonality from the processor and those, you know, the API 2500s with the um, the VCA compressors are really just real fast, you know, punchy compressors. Um, so it just helps a little bit with the tonality as well. How about guitars as far as electric? How do you, what do you guys use on them? And uh, The guitars are very particular with this group and challenging, almost one of the more challenging ones because he, Wesley, the, the singer, plays all these really old 19 like 50s guild guitars that are hollow bodies um and they've all got p most of them have p90 pickups in them which are just these real kind of like growly uh guitar pickups um electric guitar pickups and his playing style is incredible i mean that is a lot of like the rhythm of the band before i mean they've since evolved quite a bit where there's there's um some pretty big drums going on in their recordings but early on the drums were pretty sparse in a lot of their, like their first album, things like that. And so his playing, his guitar playing really carried a percussive role. And so with that kind of growly guitar tone, um, it's really, it was initially like this, you know, project that, I mean, it's probably a six year project of slowly like getting it and moving it little by little to in a direction that, that really worked well. Um, and where we landed was the guitars run into, they go into ISO cabs mostly because we have to run the volume of the amplifiers pretty low to try and keep the breakup to a minimum on the amps. 
So, so the volume of the amps is fairly low. They go into an ISO cabinet because the, you know, just to help keep the bleed out of the microphones with a low volume, since we've got a little bit higher gain on our desk um, as a result of the... What is, what is an ISO cabinet? I don't know what that is. Uh, so ISO cabinet is, um, it's a speaker inside of a box, essentially. And so you use the amplifier in the, um, the preamp, you know, portion of the amplifier of, a, say, a Fender Twin um, and then you take the speaker output of that and these boxes and companies, you know, we use one called a box of doom. Um, uh, so there's, you know, companies make these specifically for this. So you've got this, you know, a, it looks just like a road case essentially with a lid on it. It's got wheels and it's all stenciled and looks like any other road case. Like it could be just full of cables. And then on the side of it, there's speaker, you know, speaker jack inputs, there's XLR outputs. And then once you open the lid, there's a speaker in there um, and you could put whatever type of speaker you want. So typically you would take, you know, whatever speaker would be in your, your if you're using a Fender amp, you would just take the speaker out of that Fender amp and put it into this ISO cabinet. And then there are two different microphone mounting systems that essentially move across a, an X, Y, and Z axis. So you could, you could place microphones on the speaker at that point and be able to get them in whatever position you want, regardless of what type of microphone you use. And it really just helps isolate from outside noise. Um, they do have some downsides. Uh, you know, they, they definitely will make your guitar sound a little bit more compressed, right? Because there's nowhere for the air to go. Yeah. And they'll make your guitars a little bit darker as well, because a lot of the, the low frequency, low mid stuff kind of is trapped now in, in that box. But for, you know, certain scenarios and for our scenario is kind of the only way to to really keep it clean keep keep the inputs clean that's really interesting i've never heard of that yeah and what kind of mics do you use on the iso cab uh so i've got two microphones on each we have two setups for the main guitar and so two microphones i use a, a sennheiser md421 as one of them and then i use a sennheiser uh, an md409 as the other which is um a 409 for anyone that doesn't know it is amazing and it looks very similar to a like a 609 or a 906 kind of the flat square microphone but this is the original vintage version from the you know from the 60s and 70s um so it sounds totally different from a from a 609 or a 906 it's really the 421 and 409 combination on a guitar cabinet sounds amazing and just really really works works well yeah so the interesting or well another interesting part <laughs> is that um so we have two guitar amp setups. So the first amp is pretty straightforward. It's a little bit dirtier and kind of grittier, grittier sound that gets used on a handful of the songs. But the setup we actually ended up now using almost more, and well, actually we do use it as the the, the main sound mostly, is pretty unique in the sense that their, the last album they made, uh, Three, not, not the one that just came out, Brightside, but the one before in 20, uh, 2019, Three, it had a really unique sounding guitar the way they approached it and recorded it and it sounded almost like an acoustic guitar if you listen to the album a lot of the guitar parts sound like an acoustic guitar and so when we went into pre-production last tour cycle we kept chasing you know just trying to get that clean of a guitar sound and it just wasn't possible with these you know guild hollow body guilds with p90 pickups and fender amps is like there's no way <laughs> like that's and that's what we would just like try and try and try and find ways to to get as clean a sound as possible. It just wasn't happening. So I finally, you know, me, myself and, and Wes, the, the singer guitar player, we just, you know, had a conversation about it. And I asked them, you know, what, how they went, approached it in the studio. How did they come up with that guitar tone? And it turned out that uh, the main guitar sound was just, you know, like a real small amount of the Fender amps, but mostly room microphones. 
Oh, what is so essentially a you know an electric guitar hollow body being mic'd acoustically? Wow. Um, since it's a louder electric, since it's you know right because it's a hollow body, so acoustically it's a louder instrument than a regular electric. How would you have ever known that? Yeah, I mean no. That's really unique. Yeah, no, <laughs> totally. So at that point, I thought, okay, well, how can we, you know, go about replicating that live? So naturally, well, the, the first challenge, right, is that these guys are running all over the place. Um, so it had to be wireless. Like it can't, it couldn't just be a microphone, like sitting in front of a mic stand, like you might do more traditionally with like a bluegrass band or something like that. So it had to be something that would move around with them. So I, I just thought, okay, well, let's just throw a piezo pickup on it because piezo pickup is essentially, you know, a microphone. And there's a company that we use, um, that I use for all the mandolins. They, they make, uh, like sort of bluegrass, uh, piezo pickups for mandolins, guitars, resonator guitars, things like that. So we got that, uh, it's called a feather pickup. It's just a, you know, a, a little, you know, long strip of a piezo pickup and, it traditionally gets mounted inside the guitar, but I wanted to try and capture, you know, the sound of the strings to really sound acoustic. So we put it um, just past the bridge on the the outside of the body of the guitar under the strings. And that has become sort of his main sound. So it's a combination of two microphones on the amp, a piezo pickup. And then we also actually use uh, Palmer DIs, which are sort of speaker, speaker emulation DI boxes. So it's a combination of those four inputs that create that guitar sound. I'm super blown away by that. And he can play that out in front of the PA. Yeah, yeah. Wow. It is. I mean, it's, you know, like, I, it's actually kind of funny because I've had to now, you know, every single song in our set, there's a guitar change. Um, so it's, it's not an easy guitar tech gig. But yeah, every single song, there is a guitar change. And so I've since that pickup came into place, I have to make a scene, you know, like a, a, a transition, essentially scene in my show and all the snapshots that churns all the guitar channels off as they're doing the guitar changes. Cause otherwise you just hear clunk, clunk, you know, like everything clunking around. Cause there's not really, yeah. you know, you could turn off the electric guitar, you know, just turn the volume down as he's doing a handoff or turn the, turn the belt pack off cause it's wireless, but the, the piezo pickup, there's no way to really turn it off. And so it's just a microphone that's loose and you could hear every little movement of, you know, if the strap hits the guitar as they're handing it off. And Oh my goodness. So you have to do a scene that's just mutes the, yeah, exactly. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that just turns those guitars off. But can you, just speaking of scenes, given that you said there's so much happening as far as um, them running out using different mics and all that, do you work heavily with scenes besides that? You have to. Yeah, everything okay. is everything's a snapshotted scene. Okay. Um, it kind of has to be with this band. Uh, most of what I'm doing is it's turning channels on and off. And the way I do that is with a fader move. I don't do a hard mute because it's a lot of vocal mics and open microphones. I've found that if you do a hard mute, then it, it, it's sort of an audible. You, you can, can hear, hear it. You know, collapse. everything kind of right. gets sucked out and collapse a little bit. So I do a fader move where I turn the faders off with like a two second crossfade. And so you're a genius. <laughs> yeah, you're, so. You're, you're blowing me away right now. It's so the opposite of how I thought this conversation would be about the luminaires. Yeah. I mean, it's really so much more intricate. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's it's a little deceiving with them, um, but yeah. So that's so I do a lot of fader moves, turning things on and off, um, panning changes from song to song depending on what song it is. Um, small like fader level moves just to get to like a good starting point for each song, um, and then a lot of effect changes. And that's the big thing with this band. If you've you know if you've listened to their albums, you could hear lots and lots and lots of reverb and other you know 
things kind of kind of helping to give it this big like anthemic sound that you were referring to earlier. What do you what do you like as far as go to for that stuff? Um, I right now I'm completely in the box for all my effects. So I'm using mostly the Avid Revive 2 um, as the reverb plugin. I'm up so with these guys, it sounds kind of crazy, but I've got uh, 23 different reverb, or uh, not reverbs, but uh, effect engines going, essentially. It's 23 stereo effects returns uh, on my show file, and that's just because... Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the vocal reverbs change from song to song, so there's a lot of... That's one big part of the snapshot, and is is changing the, the reverb tail, changing the reverb type, you know, from... Might go from a from a big hall to a, a cool like spring reverb on the vocal for a certain for certain songs or to a room and so those are kind of the main aspects that i'm you know in my scene uh, snapshots that that's changing is you know fader moves turning things on and off some panning and then uh, snapshotting all the reverbs to to change per song wow yeah can you can you talk about um well, I guess you already have. I mean, all the development you've done with Lumineers and how to mic all that stuff and just uh, MIDI pianos and all that. What about for, for say, um, engineers starting out? I mean, I, I liked that you sort of had an emphasis on mixing from the start because um, you were a systems tech for, I, on like Metallica and stuff I saw. but Yeah, I've done that basically. Like that kind of fell between that first job and the tra- and Tracy Chapman. And then I s- spent a few years learning more about system engineering, which I think is a very important thing for any any young mixer or engineer to try and learn learn about that and understand the systems that they're mixing on, because then you'll understand how to kind of achieve the the results that you're looking for. Um, and learning learning how to tune a sound system using, you know, whether it's uh, rational acoustics, smart software, or whatever real-time analyzer you might use, like learning how to use that software is... is probably one of the most valuable things that I ever did was really diving into that and learning, learning the system engineering stuff. But back to your point, like with, you know, with the younger engineers starting out with a band and kind of coming up with like a miking scheme or developing things. I mean, it's always best, I think, to start as simple as you can get away with. You don't you know, like Lumineers. It was not, in, not intentionally overcomplicated, just kind of it grows into things sometimes, right? When you, as a band evolves and, but it's always best to kind of start with a pretty, pretty simple rooted foundation, tried and true kind of tested techniques, you know, mic your drums, pretty standard with, with, you know, I would always use two kick drum mics and and, in and out snare top and bottom. But yeah, just kind of starting out simple and and don't, don't make things overcomplicated until the job requires it to become that way. So I guess the last question that I ask everybody is just, a gift to the listeners. What would be something you would recommend as far as an, a record to listen to that you love from top to bottom that you've always listened to or something new or just what you're listening to now? Sure. I mean, I, for me, like I, my favorite band of all time is Pink Floyd. So any, pretty much any Pink Floyd record is going to be pretty like amazing and mind blowing to me and sonically sounding amazing. And especially in the live environment if anyone goes back and listens to and watches the uh the pulse uh tour and dvd in that album is just amazing the band is amazing the the mix is amazing the the video and the what they were doing because it's you know 1993 if you watch it you know like the video content they were doing a lot of the effect type things they had going on were really ahead of their time and and they always have been kind of so they always have been right so that would, i would say like as far as my all-time stuff that would be somewhere to go and then as far as sort of newer uh newer bands there's like let's see there's a new war on drugs album that just came out that is a really good sounding album a lot of like really cool 
uh, vocal distortion kind of like effects going on that are kind of subtle. And you have, you listen to it, you're like, wait, is his, is his vocal distorting right now? And you and then you hear all these layers of, of distortion on his vocal track that are, that I think are really cool. So that's, that's been a band that I've been listening to a lot lately for, for more kind of modern, modern stuff, but yeah. Sure. Sure. Well, I just thank you so much for all of the advice and just experience that you've shared. And uh, I've yeah, no problem. It's great. It's great to be here. Yeah, I, I'm I'm thankful, and um, I hope I hope your team wins. Yeah, <laughs> big day. I know. Go Warriors. <laughs> The executive producers of the Sound Girls podcast are Becky Campbell and Susan Williams. The episode was produced by me, Rebecca Wilson, and edited by Fendel Fulton. Our theme music was written and recorded by Jess Fenton, and a big thank you to our sponsors, QSC, for supporting the Sound Girls podcast. The Sound Girls Living History Project is a collection of interviews with audio industry veterans. The project seeks to highlight the careers and achievements of women and underrepresented groups in audio. Interviews are conducted by Sound Girls members with guidance from experienced interviewers in the audio industry. Interviews will be available publicly in our Living History Project and for educational use and research. You can find the Living History Project on the Sound Girls YouTube page, youtube.com slash soundgirls. Hey, are you looking for more audio-related podcasts? Well, check out our friends at the Audio Podcast Alliance. To see all their podcasts, visit audiopodcast.org.